The ultimate underdog story is David and Goliath, and we're going to talk about that today. And, and before you tune me out, one of the things I like about uh, studying these um, characters is that you can discover some new things, and hopefully you're going to discover some new things. I read a book by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell, I don't know if you know him, but he wrote a book called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And he makes a point in the book that I think is really uh, applicable to us, and that is things aren't always what they seem. Sometimes you think, well, this, <laughs> it is a vastly, uh, I'm vastly undermatched here. I'm, I, I can't do this or whatever. And sometimes the things that you think are someone's strengths actually become someone's weaknesses. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. But if you don't mind, let's kind of tell the story together. I'll, I'll kind of walk you through the story. And then we're going to look at some things that we can learn from the story of David and Goliath. So we'll just kind of jump in. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, or Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another. And you have to kind of understand the geography of Israel to understand what he's talking about here. So uh, the eastern uh, border of Israel is mountainous. And that's where you find cities like Bethlehem and Jerusalem. They're in the mountains of Israel. And as you go west out of Israel, uh, it flattens out and then it leads into the Mediterranean Sea. And so it goes from mountainous on the right, on the east, to flat on the west. And running um, east and west, uh, there are hills. It's a lot like Kentucky, actually. I got to thinking about it. It's kind of the same topology of Kentucky. And you have hills, and then you have valleys, or as we would say in Kentucky, hollers. And so they were going to meet. If this was written in Kentucky, it would be the holler of Ella is what it would have been. And so uh, the Philistines line up on one hill, and the, Israel, uh, the Israelites line up on another hill, and there's a valley in between. That, that's kind of the whole setting here. And the Israelites and the Philistines are um, long-time enemies. They're kind of notoriously historic enemies. They fight one another all of the time. All right. Now, Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out to face the forces of Israel. So really, he would have come off of his hill down into the valley and yelled up to the people on the other hill. He was over nine feet tall. There's a little bit of a debate about the language here. Some people say seven Eight, nine, I mean, uh, nine feet tall is really, really tall, and so it kind of seems almost unrealistic. I'm going to show you a picture in a minute, but let's go on. He, bore a bronze, he wore a bronze helmet. His bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. Now, if you've ever watched any of those old war movies, like when they were battling with you know, axes and things, they uh, wove together these metal chains, basically, and they wove them into a vest. It's kind of like a bulletproof vest, but primitive. And it weighed a lot, a lot of weight. For a guy this size, it weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin. These are all the finest things that you could carry. Now, this is a picture of a Russian. His name is um, Machnow, and he lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And it's reported, and you know, it's kind of, was it uh, myth or, you know, was it hype? But he was reported to be nine feet uh, two inches, I think, nine feet two. So um, there's sort of some historical evidence that perhaps there were people 
this size. If, you're have, if you get stuck on he was nine feet tall, then just, let's just say this. Goliath was a big old boy. All right, let's go with that. He's a big old boy. And he was a seasoned veteran. And he was a warrior. And so this story is about a, a little a teeny tiny dude fighting a guy that really is huge. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the enemies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. In those days, in order to keep your armies from all being dissipated... All right, so here's the deal. My army is going to fight your army. And if we fight and I lose half my guys and you lose two-thirds of your guys, I might win the battle but lose the war because then if I take over, I'm not going to have enough people to defend it. So what they would do oftentimes is they would pick a champion. Both sides would pick a champion, a representative, and that would be the battle. So not everybody had to die in the war. And so Goliath is their champion. It makes sense. He's huge. He's, he's great at what he does. And so he issues... The challenge, and in one of the most tepid verses of response I've ever heard, when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. This happens for 40 straight days, both in the morning and in the evening. 80 times they heard the challenge, and 80 times they cowered in their tents. Until one young man shows up and he says, hey, uh, I can do this. Now, The young man is named David, and every mother in the room is saying, well, why would David go to the war zone? That's a great, really great question. And unsurprisingly, the answer is because his dad sent him there. I mean, dads are like, hey, uh, go go find out some things. So Jesse, who was David's dad, said, take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and see how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report. He also took cheese, by the way, but I cut that out because I don't like cheese. Uh, But anyway, uh, hey, take some supplies to your brothers, and while you're there, I'd like you to see what's going on. This makes some sense. If you're a parent and your kids are off at war, David's the youngest. He He stayed back at home. He wasn't maybe old enough to be in the battle. And so, hey, go find out what your older brothers are up to. And then David hears... That if you fight Goliath, now he's mad because Goliath sort of challenges Israel and Israel's God. David didn't like that very much. And then he finds out there's also a reward. If you beat Goliath, there's a reward. And the reward was substantial. Uh, you get to have one of the, um, uh, the king's uh, daughters as a bride. So you get to kind of become the king's son-in-law. And you don't have to pay taxes. I don't know which one was better, but you know, it's like, that's really good. Both those are really good. Now, he sends a message to Saul, the king. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go and fight him. And it could be the moxie of youth, you know, who knows. But this, this kid, and we don't exactly know how old he is, six, let's say he's about 16 years old. He's, he's got, you know, vigor. You know, he's he's uh, high testosterone. He's like, hey, I, I'll fight him. I, I don't care. I'll, I'll take him on. And so that leads us to some life lessons. So the first one is this. Expect naysayers. Because David said, hey, I'll take him on. But look at the response. (laughs) Don't be ridiculous. I mean, Saul is in his kingly tent 
on his kingly throne trying to figure out uh, who this uh, person is that said, I'll go fight, and David shows up, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're a boy, he's a man, and he's been a warrior since his youth. You cannot do this. Now, if you listen to negative people long enough, you start to believe what they say to you. It's really important to, to figure out who you're going to listen to. Uh, if you listen to people who are fearful, you end up fearful. I have really, really dialed back my consumption of news. Because I like news, I mean, I want to know what's going on, but man, you have to pick through it and figure out. Everybody has a slant, and they're, they're uh, making it more dramatic because they want clicks, and it's like, oh, the headlines usually don't even tell you what the story means. And I just don't want to worry that much. I don't want to be. I don't want to be walking around with worry all the time. You listen to people who are worried, you're going to become a worrier. You listen to fearful people, you become fearful. You listen to negative people, you become negative. And the reason why most people don't ever go after their dream is because somebody said you can't do it. And and here you have Saul saying, "Dude, you can't do it." And then his brothers chime in. This is great. Eliab, David's oldest brother, burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And, whom, uh, and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know you're, you're conceited, how conceited you are, and how wicked your heart is. There are words for this. It's called sibling rivalry. I mean, the older brothers don't want to think that the younger son, uh, the younger brother can do something that they aren't willing to do. And so they kind of... They Dismiss him. Uh, dude, you don't even need to be here. You're, you're kind of a... You're, you're conceited. You're a chump. And what's really interesting to me is Jesus had brothers that did the same thing to him. Look at this. One time Jesus entered a house. The crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. They're ministering. They're helping people. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind. Kind of a super interesting text. And so, none of Jesus' brothers and sisters accepted him as Lord until he was resurrected. Really interesting. And can you imagine what it's like to have a brother who's always right? You should ask my sisters. Because uh, they know. Uh, it had to be tough. And so you have... Eliab and all of the brothers, they're kind of not for David. And the king is like not for David. And, and, and everybody's not for David. And, and the question we have to ask ourselves, it's really important, is who do I listen to? Now, in my life, I had my, my dad for so many years. He, he passed away about 20 years ago. But up until he passed away, I listened to my dad because this is what I knew about my dad. Now, I didn't always do what he said, and he wasn't always right. But he was always for me. And he always had my best interest at heart. And if you have somebody in your life who has your best interest at heart, you are a blessed person. And so there's David, and he doesn't really have anybody encouraging him. So it says David encouraged himself in the Lord. That's more than positive thinking. That is saying, okay, um, I'm on a mission God has a plan for my life. And we talked about it last week. God has a plan for everyone's life. I'm on a mission. 
I've got a plan for my life. God has a plan for my life. I'm not going to listen to naysayers. I'm going to still go ahead and do what God's called me to do. Because the truth of the matter is, God's not the only person that has a plan for your life. And some people will try to hold you back. Uh, David's brothers didn't want him to do this because it would make them look bad. You know, if they were thinking about the nation, what's best for the country, they needed somebody to defeat Goliath. They needed a champion. But they didn't want it to be David because it was going to make them look bad. And, and I don't know why Saul didn't want it. In fact, he, he acquiesces eventually. But um, maybe he didn't want to send a champion out that couldn't win. It's kind of what he said, right? I don't think you can win. I'm happy to send you out there. I'm happy to make you a scapegoat, but you can't win. Which brings me to the second thing. You need to realize that God is preparing you for whatever He's called you to do. He prepares us in isolation when we're not in the public eye, typically. He prepares us when nobody's looking to do things that somebody can do, that only we can do when people are looking. He kind of prepares us in the back room to do something out front. Now, David, I love this, he just doesn't back up. In fact, the word is, it says he persists. And then he gives Saul his resume. I have ta- I, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. <laughs> Are you getting the picture? The lion and the bear have the lamb in its mouth. And he's, atta- he's kind of going after it. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I'm going to be honest, that's a heck of a resume right there. I mean, a dude bad enough to club a lion and a bear with a, you know, to death? Now, that's a bad boy right there. I don't care how old you are. If I'm the shepherd, just being honest, and I got a hundred sheep, and I see a bear over there with one of the lambs in its mouth, it's going to be break time for me. Uh, it's like, hmm, I don't think so. I'm not doing that. David, not so much. Now, understand, this was his dad's sheep, and that's his inheritance, and I get all that. He's, it's a family honor thing. But my word, he, he, he's like, I, I'm, I need to tell you why I can do this. I've got daughters who are working, and sometimes they'll call me and they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this job, but I'm afraid to apply. It's like, well, why are you afraid? Well, I'm not quite qualified for it. It's like... And my advice to them and to you is this. Don't say no for somebody. Don't say no for them. What does it hurt to apply? Now, my girls haven't gotten every job they've applied for. They've not done you know, perfectly with that. But every time they go in for an interview, even if they're not qualified for the job, they learn something. You do too. You, you gain some experience. You understand now what they're looking for. And what if you got into that interview and they said, well, you know, you're not quite qualified, but we'll train you. I mean, that could happen. Don't say no for somebody. And, and so David's like, you're not going to say no for me because I can do this. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the Philistine. And Saul finally consented. And this is not wonderfully encouraging. Um, All right. (laughs) It's like, okay, go on. That's kind of how I read it. And may the Lord be with you. It's like, may may the force be with you. It's like, go on, buddy. I mean, good luck. Good luck with all that. But here's what David understood. When nobody was looking, he was being trained. 
Now, I became a preacher about 30-something years ago. Before that, my dad and I started a muffler shop. So in my early 20s, I was in the muffler game, and um, I watched my dad deal with people. He was great with people. And you know what kind of people come in a muffler shop? Well, sometimes they're nice, and sometimes they're jerks, and sometimes they're liars and manipulative and mean. And I watched how he dealt with that. And then I became a preacher. You know what kind of people come to church? <laughs> nice people. Sometimes they're mean, you know. Um, I didn't realize that I was being trained for ministry when I was watching my dad deal with people, when I was learning how to deal with people. I didn't, I didn't understand that. There's some stuff that I learned at, at the muffler game that I don't apply anymore. Um, First service, I said, I worked, on, I worked on a bender and that didn't help me, but my buddy said, you might want to, you know, uh, change the language there. So uh, uh, the pipe bender, uh, you know, I, I don't pipe bend anymore. I learned that stuff. That didn't really help me in the long run, but I learned how to deal with people. And, and I didn't realize that I was going to go into ministry and my dad didn't realize that, but God, but God knew. And we do our best even when nobody's looking. Jesus put it this way. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And if whoever's dishonest with little is also going to be dishonest with much. We, we just don't know. And every low-level, monotonous job that you do, you do to your best because you just don't know what you're learning. One of my very, very favorite stories is about Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. This took years, by the way, and he's on his scaffolding on his back painting this. I can't even imagine how monotonous that was. And there are parts of the chapel, like back in the corner, where it's kind of dark. And Michelangelo spent days and days in this one corner. And one of his friends asked him when he came off the scaffolding one time, why are you spending so much time in a corner that nobody will ever even be able to see? I love what he said. God will see it. And sometimes we're, we're like, why would I do my best on this? Because nobody's even ever going to know it. Well, God's going to know it. And, and, and Paul put it like this. Slaves, and don't get, don't get hung up on the word slave. Just worker. Let's just change it to worker. Workers, obey your earthly masters. Obey your bosses with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Don't get hung up on the language, but understand the principle. Do your best. I think about the Old Testament character Joseph and he's in prison and he's, he's been betrayed by his brothers and he had every reason to not do his best. And yet he did his best because it honored God and we honor God with our best. Do your best. And so the question here is, how are you doing when nobody's watching? Who was watching when David was guarding his sheep against the lion and the bear? Probably nobody else was out there. Nobody knew but God. And when you have a mundane, ordinary little job, how are you doing? In that movie about the 1980 victory, um, the U.S. victory over Russia in the Olympics, hockey Olympics, you see how they trained. I mean, they trained and trained and trained, and it was brutal. 
And I like that movie because it just shows that these guys were willing to go through a lot of difficulty in order to be great. When nobody was looking, when there weren't any cameras on, they were preparing for when the cameras were going to come on. A third principle. Use what you have, not what you wish you had. David could have said, I, I wish I had armor, or I wish I had this, and we, we do that. You know, I wish I was, I don't have enough education, or I don't have enough training, or I'm not experienced enough. I, I'm not, you, you fill in the blank, I'm not whatever you want to say. And sometimes, again, we sort of say, no, I, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. And Saul consents to let... David go, and then he does something quite magnanimous, which is kind of nice. He says, hey, won't you take my armor? You take my armor. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet, and a coat of mail. And David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a, a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. He's, a, he's not a, a fighter, he's a shepherd. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. And so David took them off again. Now, understand something. This is really a nice act by Saul. Saul gave him his weapons. Anybody that's ever been to war will tell you that oftentimes a guy will name his gun because it's, you know, like, you know, that's their protection and they become uh, very close to, to what's protecting them. And I, it wouldn't surprise me if Saul, you know, named his armor and he gives it to David. But what's really ironic about this earlier in the text it says that Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone else he was the biggest dude in Israel and wouldn't it make sense that the biggest dude in Israel would be the one to take on the biggest dude of the Philistines it was really it was really honestly is Saul's fight to fight but he's older you kind of lose a little bit of it when you're older you can you kind of lose a little bit of your fight and gotten complacent. And complacency often is the enemy of uh, ambition. And what I love about this story is, I suspect David looked at that stuff and thought, I can't wear this. But he honored Saul by trying it on. Look, he, he listened. He considered. He tried it. But it was going to be his neck on the line. And ultimately he said, you know what, I've got to do it the way I do it. I, I can't do it the way you do it. And I, I would caution you, be careful when somebody says it has to be done a certain way. Innovate. David was an innovator. And so David says, hey, 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 I, thank you so much. But I, I, can't, I can't do this. And the question for us today is, if God has called you to do something, what are you waiting for? I mean, if He's given you a mission, are you just waiting? Are you waiting for perfect conditions? Because the Bible says if you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. What a great verse. A lot of times, you just have to do it. Which brings me to the fourth point. Do it. <laughs> That's the point. Then he took his staff in his hand, David, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistines. Now, think about 
the setting just for a second. They're meeting in this valley. The way my mind's eye pictures it is they're looking at each other like up the valley, not kind of across the hills. So there's Goliath on that end, and there's David on this end, and and Goliath is approaching, and he has a he has an armor bearer. That's a guy that holds his, his shield. And he's kind of walking behind that dude. And David is just, he's flying solo. He's just kind of by himself. And this young man, uh, this kid that's 5'9", 17 years old, is approaching a dude that's 8 or 9 feet tall. And meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. And he looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And I felt the sting of envious eyes. Mm-hmm. It happens when you all that. Uh, it happens sometimes, you know. There was David. He was young, ruddy. Talks about him being ruddy and handsome. And, and Goliath didn't like it. And so, uh, I love this. He starts talking trash. I love trash talking. I, I just love it. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. <laughs> 3,000 year old trash talk right there. And uh, David responds, um, You come with me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, God will conquer you, and I will cut off your head. And then he says, And then I will give your dead bodies of your men to the birds of the air and the wild animals. Evidently, that birds of the air and wild animals, that was a go-to. Uh, they, it's like talking about somebody's mama. You know, they, they really they liked that one. He said, hey man, they, they both kind of said the same thing. They're kind of getting amped up for the fight. Right? They're about ready to go at it. And... <laughs> When you think about it, did David have any advantages at all? I mean, he was young. Maybe he was more nimble. But this was a guy who was seasoned. He knew how to fight. He knew what it looked like. Uh, David was normal-sized, maybe even small. Goliath was huge. David had zero combat experience. Goliath had Lots of combat experience. But David did have some advantages. Because remember, things aren't always what they seem. Now, uh, in the military then, there were kind of three categories. The cavalry, those were people who rode in on horses or with chariots. And those folks uh, were uh, one line of uh, an army. They, they were kind of one line of either defense or, or, or uh, aggression. The second line would be the infantry. The infantry, those are hand-to-hand combat guys. Goliath is a hand-to-hand combat guy. He, he walks up. I mean, he's huge. What horse? He couldn't even ride a horse. He's so big. And so, and what a target he'd be on a horse. And so he walks in, and he wants hand-to-hand combat. And then there were the artillery. We don't think about that in ancient warfare, but there were people who shot arrows, and there were guys who were slingers. Not to be confused with swingers, Totally different, okay? I really don't want to confuse that. There were slingers. These guys who had these slings and they were proficient with them. And David was. And he had four things to his advantage. 
Now, when we think about a slingshot, we think of the thing with like a little spare tire and a pouch and, and like a little Y and we shoot it. And that's nothing like what David would have used. In fact, ballistics experts have discovered that the sling like David would have used, it would have been a long piece of leather and then there's a pouch and another piece of leather and you swung it like this and then they would rotate it quite quickly and, and they would let go of one of the straps and they were incredibly accurate. In fact, skill is the third thing there. Uh, there are pictures, paintings of people who are slinging rocks, hitting birds in flight. They were, they were amazing with these things. Ballistics experts have uh, done some research on this. And a sling can throw a, a stone at 115 uh, feet a second. <laughs> this room is about 60 feet wide. So double the, the width of this room. You can throw a rock from double the distance of this room to this side in less than a second. If that's true, and there's no reason to believe it's not, they've done the testing, then Goliath wouldn't even have had a chance to flinch. In one second, it would have been there. And then the stones. Very interesting about the stones. In that particular valley, they're made of um, barium sulfate, the very dense rock, very hard rock. And it says that David chose smooth stones because that would have been aerodynamic. It's very um, strategic on his part. And again, the same ballistics experts did some research on these stones thrown from that kind of sling. And they've determined that from 100 feet, that stone would hit at the approximate power equal to a 45 caliber handgun. When Goliath said, come here... I'm going to give, you know, give your uh, body to the animals or whatever. Uh, it doesn't say this, but David probably said, I don't think so. Uh-uh, you know, uh, we, it ain't going to go down like that. We're not fighting like that. And so David used his skill to combat an enemy that wanted to do it a certain way, and David was going to do it another way. If he had listened to Saul and gone in with that armor and tried to fight the regular way, he was destined for defeat. And there's something else you have to understand. Goliath said, I think it's the next slide, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? But David didn't have sticks. He had a staff. He had one stick. When people are gigantic, like Andre the Giant or Goliath, it's usually caused by a condition called acromegaly. There is a tumor on the pituitary gland that causes it to continue to produce and you grow bigger and bigger. The problem with that is as you get larger and larger, it begins to oftentimes press on the optic nerves. Goliath had a hard time figuring out who his enemy was. And so David had this confidence. He says, all those who gather here will know that it is not, uh, not by sword or spear, but he had the spirit. The Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and it will give all of you into our hands, my hands. So the question is, by the way, David wins. Uh, that's why we know about the story. Uh, it'd be really kind of boring if Goliath won. David wins. Somebody after the first, I didn't really even say that first service. Like, well, you kind of know how it ends. But anyway, uh, he won. What are you expecting God to do in your life? It's a great question. Because David expected to be victorious. 
That doesn't mean you have pie in the sky and you don't think through the, the, the um, chance that something might not go right. But, but David believed. And I, I like the story of David and Goliath. And I, you, you do, sometimes you do this. You can see Jesus in David. Uh, it's called typology, honestly. And you see a type of Jesus in this story. Think about this. David left his father to come to the battle. And the Bible tells us that Jesus left heaven, his father, to come to the battle. Uh, David was going to take on an antagonist, and Jesus came to take on an antagonist. Um, what seemed like certain defeats on the cross became victory. Uh, David was rejected by his brothers. Jesus was rejected by his brothers. David's victory was won by foolish means. Nobody would have even predicted it. Our victory was one, what some would call foolish means. Oh, did I go too far? Yeah. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So just remember, things aren't always what they seem. And what might seem certain defeat may not be so. You prepare in obscurity for what's going to happen in the light. You understand that God is preparing you for what He's called you to do. And then you believe. You believe. Lord, thank You for our time together today. Thank You for this story and the encouragement that it gives us. And help us as we leave today to be careful who we listen to. To not wait for the perfect timing to do the things that you've called us to do. Lord, help us to be attentive to your voice and help us to be people who have belief that you can do what you've called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.